0: Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast.
1: This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching.
0: And as usual, lately, we're lying, because we did not take a walk we did at not. all. I We could have. I don't even know. It's getting to the point where it doesn't even occur to us to take a walk, and I only think about it when I say the name of this podcast, and then I'm like, "Well, oh,
1: to be, how far we've fallen. to be fair, huh. you thought you had a meeting this morning. I thought morning. I had a meeting.
0: Yeah. I I woke up yesterday with a headache. It was Monday. It's normally my day off, but my all my children were home and I just it was just a mess of a day. And so I functioned most of the day, like rearranging my plans, because I thought I had a meeting this Monday that's actually Friday morning. I sent a couple of emails talking about Friday, but I wrote Monday instead. Like I was just a whole, a whole mess. So anyway, I just feel the need to be transparent and say we did not walk. We've you're, just been you're, you're sitting allowed. here talking about <laughs> everything in the world. What is astonishing you?
1: Well, I came across this new story that's already a couple of months old, and mm-hmm. I'm surprised I haven't heard this already. Um, it's about a 13-year-old girl, I believe in Alabama, well, I know, in Alabama. Her name is Annalee Wicker. And um, she is 13 years old. She has graduated from high school and college. And um,
0: Alina Annalie. Alina
1: Annalie Wicker, that's it. And she, um, she's graduated from college, and she is now the youngest African American to be accepted into medical school. 13, like, what am I doing with my life? Mm-hmm.
0: Um, like real-life Doogie house. My
1: 8-year-old is going to have to step his game up. I don't know <laughs> what is happening here. Um, but um, she is so fascinating. She has already been an intern for NASA. Um, she has started a nonprofit called um, Brown Girl STEM, right? Mm-hmm. Science, Technology, Engineering, engineering math. Math, Mathematics. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, and she said when she was a intern at uh, NASA, she said, I didn't see a lot of girls and women that looked like me, so I started this organization, as one does when one is 12 years mm-hmm, old. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think the, the reason the story is astonishing me is that it is a reminder for me. I mean, it, it came to my attention at just the right time because it's a reminder that even though we're in this... Time this season, where it seems that you know everything on the news is heavy. That we're car- carrying this this heavy burden of news stories, of violence, and tension, in politics. And we're being told that at any moment the world is going to end, and the economy is going to collapse, and all bad things that you thought might ever happen are on the verge of happening. And we're walking through this thicket of negativity. For me, this story is a reminder to stay focused on goals, to stay focused on dreams. I mean, this, this family is just incredibly determined and focused. She um, is doing most of her classwork online, but then flies from Alabama. She, she was a student at Arizona State, would fly from Alabama to Arizona to do her lab work. Um, I mean, just incredible and i realized hearing her story how easily i get distracted by all the negative that i hear and it does for me accentuate highlight you know the the black tax right this sense mm-hmm. that there is an emotional psychological spiritual financial price to pay for being black in america like there 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 is a there's a there's a weight when you are driving down the road and you see a police officer and you don't know if you're gonna have an interaction that ends your life there's a weight that comes from in my own life having a a negative interaction negative interactions with law enforcement there's a, a weight of walking through the world knowing that no matter where you go you may be judged before you do or say anything and that weight that black tax can um, move you, cause you to dim your light, to do less, to, um, um, reach up and out for less than what you're called to be and do. And that's, that's a very real, um, struggle that I have in my own life. And this girl, this story just kind of shook some things off of me. It's like, no, wait, I, I am letting some things get to me when I don't have to.
0: Right. Well I I think obviously this child is extraordinary and exceptional and it is not it is surprising that a child would have that capability at that point in their chronological development and it is you know it is it is astonishing regardless of the ethnicity of that child and it is I think no more or less likely that that kind of an outlier would show up in any ethnic group, right? Like it's not, um, and I, I think the only thing that I think about stories like that is sometimes I worry that they have just sort of the opposite um, effect, that there's just sort of this internal pressure that that you have to be sort of that much of an outlier and that extraordinary in order to earn um honor and attention from the world in general. And I think um, there's this poem that I really like. I mean, and people have probably heard it before, but but it's by William Martin and says, do not ask your children to strive for extraordinary lives. Such striving may seem admirable, but it is the way of foolishness. Help them instead to find the wonder and the marvel of an ordinary life. Show them the joy of tasting tomatoes, apples, and pears. Show them how to cry when pets and people die. Show them the infinite pleasure in the touch of a hand and make the ordinary come alive for them. The extraordinary will take care of itself. And I don't say that to take away at all from just celebrating the just unique belovedness and the way that that's manifested in this particular child, but I do think every 13-year-old black child, every 13-year-old white child in a healthy world would be marveled at for the gift of God that they are. And our children don't have to be admitted to med school at 13. They don't have to be straight-A students. They don't even have to not end up in juvenile detention, right? Like we, we as followers of Jesus, need to be able to see the wonder and the sacredness of every human created in the image of God. And I think part of the issue is that too much of the sort of false cult of excellence that exists in the culture has crept into the church. And we just want people to be excellent for Jesus and sort of a warped reading of, you know, my utmost for his highest, right? Like we don't, we are free, we're free to, you know, what is the chief end of humanity? It's to enjoy God and glorify, glorify God him. and yeah. enjoy him forever. And I think that's a radical stumbling block belief about um, anthropology. And so I think, you know, it's it's beautiful that this young girl, I mean, certainly there's, I love that the world has not asked her, to be smaller than she is, or to slow down, or to stay—you know—like each one of us is meant to be on our own path because we're irreplaceable. And you know, we have a um, an art installation on the wall downstairs at the Grove that's forever falling down that says, "Like the world needs who God created you to be, right?" And the world needs um, Alina Anna Lee Walk Wicker Wicker. Wicker. Mm-hmm. Um, the world needs her, and also. The world needs, you know, the 13 year old child who is in and out of the behavior management office and the, you know, and for us, the culture might not be able to see that, but we need to be able to see that, right? And we need our children to know that they don't have to exist in a way that the world deems extraordinary in order to have sacred worth and in order for their life to be cherished and for their existence, just to be authentically seen as a gift and i think sometimes that gets mocked as like oh everybody gets a participation trophy i mean i think that that's not what it is but but it's not just some people have lives of worth and value what we believe is that all people are bear the image of god and so we are marveling at one another and particularly we have to raise children to become adults to know that they don't always have to be earthing, earning their worthiness and their belonging. So like, you know, in a world that can celebrate um, this child, and nobody feels threatened by that. And also know that um, other other people and other children have gifts that we might need to work harder to see. But that's a, that's a fault of our fallenness, not their giftedness. So um, that's what that's what I'm thinking. I mean, I and I don't. I just need to make sure that no one says I don't think that this. I don't have any opinion about what this family has done. I don't. I don't doubt at all that they have, you know, just l- supported her and loved her in grace-filled ways that led her to become exactly who she wants to be. Love it, love it. Yeah. Um, but it's important that we don't need kids to be the subject of newspaper articles in order to understand and I just wish that when children walked into this church that into our communities and not just children and not just youth but even adults that we just could really marvel at them Um, and I have one more thing and then I'll shut up one of our church members Jaron Lindsay is an educator and he often leads worship um, in the call to offering and I just remember one day he talked about um at the time when jesus was in you know got ran away or ran away to the temple and nobody knew where he was and he was they found him and he was 12 and he was talking to the um priests and scribes and people were amazed at his knowledge and authority and and people marveled as they often did in his life like uh, in this Mary and Joseph's kid, like this is just the kid from around the corner. Like, what, what in the world is going on? And just that sense that familiarity can blind us to the extraordinary um, gift that the people in our lives and in our communities are. And I, I want us to to cultivate communities where we can marvel at one another's belovedness and. We aren't just like, oh, yeah, you're just the kid from around the street or you're just the whatever until somebody proves them wrong by getting admitted to medical school at 13, right? That people can walk in the door and we can just be like, how how amazing, what an amazing, astonishing gift from God it is that we get to be community together and that you are here bearing revelation that I will n- never know, but for the grace of knowing you and that this can be a place where people can just learn that their sacred worth is, um, you know, stamped in indelible ink. And, um, that, that's sort of a a cornerstone of recovering Shalom. And I just love that idea of like, what if we were the kind of community that was the opposite of that sacred community? Like this kid can't be something special. He's just so-and-so and -and -and so-and-so son. If we were like, no, this child is special and we know that because they're created in the image of God, and that's just the culture of our community. And it sometimes it's even easier to marvel at children than it is at youth and adults. And what if we could really see that about one another—that this person is exceptional? And I don't know what that's about, but I know, I know it to be true. And I'm I'm on a treasure hunt in knowing people.
1: Yeah. Another takeaway for me from uh, this story is you know we've heard about a, a glass ceiling. And the thing about a glass ceiling is that you can you can see what's on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. You just can't get there. Mm-hmm. And I think there there's another kind of ceiling where you you can't even see what's on the other sure. side. And so um uh, this 13-year-old girl causes me to ask w- what am I not seeing? I mean, she she started out in something else. Um I believe it was engineering and mm-hmm. she got into it and she said I don't like this.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to do
1: something else. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, um, yeah, I, 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 really love this story. Well, that-
0: and I think it's worth noting that in all of our school systems where they have gifted and talented programs, like the stats are so clear that Black children and children of color with extraordinary intellectual gifts are more likely to be sent into. Um, An exceptional children a behavioral modification program than into those gifted and talented programs. And so the system doesn't see it.
1: That's how um, she was being interviewed um, by, I believe it was Good Morning America, and they asked her, how did she get on this track? And she said, well, I got in trouble. Mm -hmm. A teacher assumed that I cheated on a test. Mm -hmm. And that's how um, she uh, started on this journey of – of being this, you know, exceptional child outside of the school system cuz she had <clears throat> she had to leave the school system in order to mm-hmm. and
0: grow. it's i mean it's just a real and again i think it's just a our the systems we create really reveal our values and in our culture we are really committed to a story of scarcity so we create these gifted and talented programs in our schools and then we impose arbitrary limits on them and say like, okay, this is going to be for the top 10% or the top 5%. And it's really interesting because they've done studies that show that allowing every child who wants to be in those programs to be in those programs actually benefits everyone and benefits the schools but we continually choose to limit them because we're really committed to a system where there is an elite and exceptional um small group and then a long a large middle and then a large bottom and we just really like our hierarchies and we really cannot conceive of a world that has value where there is not scarcity and limit and so you know i think because then you've got parents and families competing for resources then all of the isms um, begin to affect the way that people get access to these limited opportunities and just the real just tragedy of it all is that it's just such an arbitrary limit that I don't you know and I see this all the time as a parent of a school child and it and it is in public schools, it's certainly in private schools as well in charter schools. Like there's this idea that learning is a competition. And you know, sports are a competition. There's a winner and a loser in the football games and there's a winner and a loser in a race. But there doesn't have to be a winner and a loser in a learning environment. Like that is literally unlimited the amount of people that we allow to achieve their full academic potential. But we are invested in having a system where only some get elite educational opportunities because we like a distinctions and advantages to be preserved. And so we rig it. Yeah.
1: I'm thinking about um, being 13. Like if I were her friend and mm-hmm. I was 13, I could see myself in competition with her thinking that mm-hmm. I need to do exactly what she's doing or... I can just let her story inspire me, right? If she's doing that, um, if she's doing what she's doing, well, what's possible for me? Mm -hmm. And to be happy, to be um, satisfied, to to find comfort and joy in what is possible for me.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and I think to say, look, the world recognizes as it should the extraordinary value of her unique. The way that she is uniquely made in the image of god the world recognizes it and celebrates it as it should but to recognize that even if the world does not see and celebrate how fearfully and wonderfully uniquely i am made in the lord that doesn't mean i'm not right and so i think just to be able to say you know again we're not in a competition for a limited amount of special right and I know that there's a way of thinking that if everyone's special, nobody's special. Like that is definitely um, the 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 message of our world. It's just not the message of the kingdom. And that's what we just stumble over all the time. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it would be an extraordinary thing to have that child as as your child, as your sibling, as your friend, and just be able to to have um, be to ha- create a culture where. It's not, a threat. And not it's, a threat and it's, you know, it's unique, but it's not um, limited. Right. And so anyway, we, um, but we commodify people. And so we say like, well, I can see how your unique gifting is, um, you know, going to be valuable in the marketplace in particular ways. And so that means you're more worthy. And that's um, just a, a sign of our fallenness.
1: I had a parent teacher conference with my child's third grade teacher last week and um so our goal post pandemic it's like we 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 just want to get him to grade level in mm-hmm. all the subjects right and so he's making great progress and we're very happy about that and um his teacher said to me i just want you to know that your child your son is very kind mm-hmm. he's nice to all the students the students in the classroom they like him they they all want to be around him mm-hmm. and um that um aside from his academic work really blessed me because i'm thinking well that is a direct result of our parenting mm-hmm. right we mm-hmm. we are in very intentional about his character the kind of human being he is becoming mm-hmm. he is already um the academic work. Um, I don't know if we help that much there, but um, yeah. but character, right? We, mm-hmm. We're just very intentional about that, and and so often we fail to put all of those aspects together, all those things right. together. Well, and
0: I think even in Christian communities, we very rarely have um, brave conversations about what our dreams are for our children, what our what, what does faithfulness to our children look like, and too often we have just unthinkingly. Co opted whatever the American dream is. So, like, faithfulness to my child is getting them into a good college and getting them into XYZ, and not ever stop to marvel, well, how does that actually connect with the gospel story? Like, where in reading the gospel do you see that the pinnacle of faithfulness to your child is getting them a college degree? You don't see it there, right? And it was interesting. I was reading something, I was reading an article in The Atlantic the other day, and they were talking about. I mean, so there's this this theory of intensive parenting or a label of intensive parenting, which is just when you as a parent are really focused on getting every advantage that you can for your child. So just making sure that they're involved in all the extracurricular activities and that you're getting them special tutors when they need it. And you're just really, you know, making sure to maximize every moment of their time. And there's been some pushback against that in certain spheres about like, hey, kids need time to be bored kids don't need every um they they don't need their parents advocating for them in every situation it's good and character forming for kids to sometimes experience what it's like to you know have something be unfair and not work out their way just all this stuff and this um author was writing back and saying like actually i hear it and i want to believe it because intensively parenting my child is exhausting and instead of being on my computer at night researching the best preschool to get into. I'd like to just be drinking a glass of wine and talking to my wife, but I have to do this because intensive parenting is what requires. And he's like, "Look, you can say it's not necessary all you want, but you, but when you um, look at the data." it actually people are intensively parenting their children because it produces results and they and their children are better off if they are intensively parenting and it was interesting because then you get down in the article and wonder like well what is that better off like what it's is that objective off. standard that's better off and he's and he says like well it's just income level right like intensively parenting your child means that they will end up In a job where they will make more money. And then he has a sentence where he says, you know, and in America, you know, increased income leads to all kinds of other advantages, which is true. That is true. But it's just interesting how, like, you just blip right over that. Like, well, of course, if I can get my child to have a career where they make more money, then I have achieved faithfulness. I've been faithful to my child. I have loved my child well. And to be able to say, like, look, that is probably true. For the average American citizen, but it is fundamentally blasphemous to a follower of Jesus to say that my child's um, life is not about how much money they earn. And to really hold that as a community is scandalous. And, you know, I, I just think it's really important that we have conversations with our in our communities about what what do we want for our children? And and what kinds of choices are we making that is maybe based on everyone else saying, well, this is the best and to go like, okay, but without demonizing people who make that to say like, but is that the best for us? Do we want our child in this particular school receiving this kind of message day after day after day about what it means to work and what it means to have worth and how the people around you are Obstacles to be overcome or competition to be bested as opposed to, you know, kinship right? and, um, and to be able to say, you know, maybe we as a community need to be able to say we have values other than achievement as the world defines achievement values, like um, kindness and steadfast faithfulness. And I think, you know, that's really important, but it, we we can't even name that out loud. And it's, and we're not even looking at some of these places that we unequivocally label the best are places where there's huge suicide rate and addiction problems and sexual assault rates. And we just, we're like, well, yeah, but I mean, yeah, but it doesn't matter because it's the best. I'm like, well, well, then what the heck do we consider the best if it comes at the price of our child's Soul and well-being, um, and I and I I think that's just so true. And why we need to look at like why do we look as if acknowledging a child's kindness is somehow a booby prize for followers of Jesus Christ? Like the world despises kindness, but we shouldn't. And obviously, what what the world is crying out for is not more um people who can be successes in the marketplace. Anyway, I I think I think about that just so often.
1: <laughs> so what's astonishing you?
0: Um well, what is astonishing me is um you called me on Sunday morning, Early which Sunday is morning. extraordinarily rare. Yeah. Um and so I knew something bad had happened and um called to say that Um, On Saturday night, the church of a colleague of ours, really your best best friend, best person, Albert Moses.
1: The first um, pastor to become my friend after I was
0: ordained. Mm -hmm. And his church is Matthews Merkland Presbyterian Church, which is one of the historically black African-American churches in Charlotte, um, was the victim of an arson attack on... Saturday night um which has not gotten any local press at I'm all surprised that it was at all the news. none and now the church was not burned to the ground no. the damage was limited to one room and a hallway and while they were not able to worship on their campus last Sunday they will be able to worship in their sanctuary yes. this Sunday um and i just think it's too easy for us to rush past these moments especially as white people to just sort of accept that well it wasn't that bad or it was it was just a whatever or there are always a few crazy people out there and not really recognize um, the destructive power (laughs) of um, that act that Matthews Merklin this will be the second time that it has um, been deliberately set on fire, which is a really extraordinary thing. Yes. Um, and the first time it was set on fire by a 13 year old white girl in the, in the 90s, is that
1: right? Late 80s, early 90s. Um, um, there was like a, a few year period, a period of I think maybe five or six years, maybe a few more, when about 30. Historically, African-American churches were burned um, Mm -hmm. in the South.
0: And then about, I want to say, four or five years ago, maybe it was right after Donald Trump was elected, there was another spate of black churches being burned all around here. And um, the creek just up the street from us, um, a historically black church was burned down and not to the ground again, um, but you know, significant structural damage. Um, And, you know, I think it's really important that white Christians see and lament and grieve this and figure out practical ways to show up and offer support that if um, nameless, faceless forces, people... Um, intend to do evil and threaten that that named and visible communities stand up and say you know no and how can we repair and how can we honor and affirm and not you know to really listen deeply for the psychological um burden that this is that people feel I mean something sacred has been desecrated um And that it is not just a thing that happened last Saturday night. It's a thing that happened last Saturday night that has its roots in what happened four years ago, what happened 20 years ago, what happened in the 60s, what happened in the 1860s, right? That just this long um, struggle to both um, commodify and exterminate. Um, the sanctity of black lives and black communities. And if, you know, black people are not burning down black churches, white people are, and vulnerable white people are doing it. White children, um, people who, people like Dylan Roof, people who are, um, you know, able to be possessed by this, ideology and worship this destructive idol of white supremacy. And, and we have to understand that on the one hand, there's work of repair and reimagining the world that needs to be led by Black people and people of color. Um, and also, there is work of dismantling white supremacy that really needs to be led um, with intentionality and urgency and agency by white people. And I, I think until white people see and grieve and care about what happened at Matthews, Merkel, and Presbyterian as much as black people are, well, first of all, the body of Christ is divided, then it's not the body of Christ. And second of all, um, we can't, you know, we, we cannot save our children from this kind of possession until we recognize that they're vulnerable and that it's our job to do. And I think, you know, white parents, and you know, just as black parents, as a huge black tax have to have the talk with their black children about how to stay safe when stopped by the police and how to navigate, um, you know, hostile environments um, and come home alive, even though it diminishes um, the the freedom and glory that they enjoy in childhood, white parents, we need to do that too. We need to talk to our white children about there are going to be people who are going to come to you and say lies like X and lies like Y. And here's why they're not true. And here's how I want you to respond. And here's what I want you to know. If you mess up, you can come to me and I will help you. And you're allowed to make mistakes, but I need you to understand what's at stake here. And I need you to understand how much power your choices have because it's not your fault, but, you know, because of this culture that we live in, um, your, your mistakes can have, um, you know, terrible, destructive power in the world and can be weaponized by other people who will never be held accountable for them, but will use you as a, as a scapegoat or will use you as a sacrificial lamb in order to light something on fire. And so I'm just, I'm grieving that I'm lamenting that and I'm seeking the Lord for, you know, what does it look like to be faithful to, um, that congregation and to, um, Reverend Albert Moses in this time.
1: Yeah, I do know that um, investigators have concluded that it was arson. Uh, it's not an accident. It wasn't a, an electrical fire. it's arson. Um, there is not a suspect at this time, not that I'm aware of, and so um, we don't have a motive. But um, back in the 80s or 90s when the church was burned last, um, I think it was um, – the governor of North Carolina or someone with the Justice Department who said, um, well, it's not a coincidence that all of these churches that are being burned are black. Right. Uh, and so uh, we do not think this is a, a coincidence either. Um, I, I just think it's so important for white people to know and care about this because the people who commit these kinds of acts are doing this
0: in as, your name, as an expression for of your, whiteness, for mm-hmm. your benefit,
1: right? Mm-hmm. They and so you have got to, at some level, respond saying, No, we don't want this. This is right. not, we, we reject this. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing that mm-hmm. comes to my mind is that these things seem to happen. And and, and you, you said that, um, uh, people who commit these kind of acts are often very vulnerable people, and I wholeheartedly agree. And it often seems like it's it's a response of fear to um, growth, uh, advancement of, of black people in particular, um, uh, people of color in general, that when there is some form of um, growth, uh, advancement, that these things happen to say, okay, all right, you guys Stop. Sit down. We got to cut this out, lest you um, become too great, too big, whatever. Um, and so, on and the, there's on that the...
0: scarcity myth again, too. Absolutely, right. Like if yes. this church flourishes, it's a threat to it's me and threat. mine.
1: Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So on on the flip side, it's it's causing me to ask exactly what are white people afraid of? Because for many of us, the mentality has been over the past few years. One of survival, mm-hmm. one of let's just make it through this season. Um, I I see some some growth, some advancing of our people, but I I really don't see what white people are so afraid of.
0: Well, I just think, you know. I think that when we talk about this as being demonic, and I do think that this is a demonic power and principality, this white supremacy, it's got nothing to do with people whose skin is created with a particular amount of melanin in it, right? Like, there's nothing wrong or unholy about being A person who is deemed white but the culture that has been created deliberately around whiteness has been a hierarchical oppressive scarcity culture and it's destructive and I think it's just really important to recognize also the larger context of this is that Matthews Merkland has is is an old congregation um like I don't do you know when it was founded I don't but I I think it's been around a good while but I just think it's important that it is a congregation that doesn't have a lot of economic resources as opposed to other white congregations who were who have been around as long and it's just easy for us not to notice that or just to be like oh I mean there's you know there are no, there are um a lot of very wealthy white churches there are very few Wealthy black churches there are very few black churches that can pull on an endowment. There are very few black churches that have um, the kind of what what many white churches would take for granted as um, institutional stability and we need to really see as white people what that is a reflection of it's not because deep irony alert. It's not because black people have been less faithful than white Christians, right? It's not because black Christians have been less generous and, and done stewardship less than white Christians. It's because of the ways that black Um, Americans have been disenfranchised in our economic system have meant that they haven't had generational wealth to pass down and leave a bequest to their church. They haven't had the ability to do capital campaigns on the levels that white churches had. They haven't been able to get loans in the way that white churches were able to get loans and build institutional wealth in that way. And so to say, like, a... A fire like this at Matthews Merkland, I'm sure they, I know they have insurance. I know that they are responsible people, but even if the damage is not extensive, it's a its a real existential threat to the um, life of this congregation because the margin is just so thin because racism because slavery because america and i think we again as white people want to just think like oh well what happened a hundred years ago has really nothing like we're over it by now everything's fair now my a good friend um started first grade when the schools in north carolina were desegregated and she talks about her first grade teacher saying okay everything's fair now right because that was just really the idea like okay from here now now it's fair we've and from it. here on now out we don't ever have to think about this anymore because it's fair we've made it fair now and i think it's recon- it's important to recognize that's not true and so how do we respond what does justice look like what does equity look like what does being one body of christ look like when a brother when a brothers congregation when siblings congregation suffers this kind of attack this kind of damage? And and how do we look at not just what happened on Saturday night, but the disparity in our denomination and really see that and recognize that we have agency, we have resources, and to do nothing is to make a choice. To allow these trends to just continue um, is to, is to co-sign on them. So Again, everybody's free to do whatever we want. I'm not saying anybody has to do anything, but I think we can look at this and say, it's not like things were right before there was a fire. So how do we respond now that there has been a fire? And how does our denomination in so many ways seek to legitimize itself? by the presence and the leadership of Black Presbyterians? How do we attempt to paint a picture to the world that says this is who we are and these are our values? When really in a lot of ways, it's a facade when you look at how we expect people to live with very different sets of resources.
1: Well, going back to what we were saying about education, if everything is a competition, then I'm sure it's fairly easy for... Otherwise, well-meaning white people to say, okay, no one was harmed. Right. No one, you know, no one lost their life. And if this um, gives me as a white person a bit of a leg up in this culture, in this society, um, and it, it brings some pain to black people, mm, I can live with that.
0: Well, I mean, I just think the reality is it's important for white people to think, how would you feel if somebody set your church on fire? Would you just be like, oh, well. Um yeah I I think it's really important. I think there are certainly congregations in our denomination and in our presbytery who have the resources to really make this right. Um and I and I speak of myself and my congregation too, right? Like it's just a what do we owe one another as as the debt of love? Um I think we should wrestle with it. It should be an uncomfortable thing and we should embrace that because spiritual discomfort is healthy. And that's the bottom line. We've just, we're just too comfortable with the inequity of burdens that we bear within the body of Christ. We're just too comfortable with how much harder it is to be church, um, for our black siblings and our also other, um, Christians of color. And it's not that there aren't white churches that aren't struggling because the, There are, (laughs) but I I think it's just really important, um, to, to really be uncomfortable with how comfortable we've been. And I, I'm just really astonished that, that this is still where we are, that in 2022, in, in October of 2022, somebody tries to burn down a black church and like, we yawn. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So what are you thinking about?
0: <laughs> I just told you what I'm astonished about. Oh,
1: gosh. I don't know. Well, it's pretty heavy duty what we were talking about before mm. we hit the record button.
0: Right. I know I talk <laughs> about that. Um, I guess I am thinking about Advent being just around the corner. I'm thinking about today when we're recording this. It's November 1st, which is All Saints Day. Um I'm thinking about just how I I need to spend more time pondering and wondering at the revelation of those two two days. Um, All Saints Day is something that Protestants really don't pay attention to very much, and that's kind of a weird... um, Flex left over from the Reformation. Um, but the idea that we believe, I mean, it's just a fundamental Orthodox biblical revelation that those who are in Christ are saints of light and are saints um, not because they're an elite, exceptional, extraordinary few but are saints because they have been sanctified by Jesus. And I think it's this really, to really wonder what that means, right? I I think historically the church has said, you know, one branch of the church has said, well, some of us are saints and that needs to be verified by, you know, 16 miracles and a chocolate chip cookie by the experts and then you're a saint. Um, And that's not the message. It's not, it's the biblical message is not some people are saints, and the rest of us are are um consumers are <laughs> um but the other alternative is sort of well, nobody's a saint or or nothing's really changed, or who you are doesn't really matter to God, it's only who Jesus is that matters, and you can just kind of keep on you do you and and it's fine um that's not true either there There really is transformation, there really is sanctification. There really is new birth and um, new life in Christ. And that new life is on a continuum, but it's different than the old life. Um, I think it is um, I think that new life is the realization of who we as humans created in the image of God, were always. Destined to be, but beginning to live as that human here and now, and not just in some other realm in some other place um and i i I think you know just living just wondering at what does that mean? it means something um it means something that in Christ we are a communion of saints, and it means something. That Christ was born among us, which is Advent, right? The season of Advent is when we prepare, not we don't prepare for what has already happened. Um, it's not like when we start, you know, the last Sunday of November that we all of a sudden just like all agree that we're going to pretend that we don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> like we don't know if Jesus is coming. Like what we are saying is not just that. Christ was born as Jesus of Nazareth in first century Palestine, but that Christ is coming and that the incarnation wasn't a one and done scandal. This idea that God, almighty God, supreme, um, all powerful, all knowing, perfect, sovereign God would put on human flesh and we sort of continue to struggle with this false idea that like everything down here on earth is just dirty and crappy and disposable mm-hmm. and who cares and and there's there's another realm of you might people call it heaven and it's like up there and we're all running around in skirts and wings and playing harps and the right the goal is to get there their goal is to get there and who cares what happens down here no jesus i mean the christ being born in flesh and in the particular flesh that God chose to be born in not the flesh of a prince in a palace not the flesh of a wealthy honored powerful human but the flesh that was wrapped in the scandal of you know um a birth before out, outside of marriage and the flesh that became a refugee they had to run Um, for their lives and um, the flesh of a impoverished peasant from Galilee, from a place where nobody thought anybody who mattered came from that place And, and flesh that was arrested and flesh that was condemned and flesh that was humiliated and beaten and ultimately crucified, which was not just an extraordinarily painful way to die, but was Um, shameful was shameful and and so you know what does it mean that glory not just took on flesh but took on that flesh and what does that mean about how we understand the sanctity of life that Christ wasn't just born then but that we say Christ is born among us now in this place and that in Christ we are saints and we are both the same and utterly different um And I'm just thinking about all of that and how that allows us to look really soberly at the truth of the world we live in and the ways that it's shaped by the systems that I think are demonic um, and are created to steal and to kill and to destroy. But also to know that um, human life is sacred and that Christ was and is born among us and will come again not to destroy the world um, but to finish the work of redemption that also already is finished on the cross like i'm not saying that this isn't it's not easy um it's the glory of god is impossible to open our eyes and our minds wide enough to behold it but it's important that we struggle. I mean, I think for all the reasons that we're talking about, it it is so easy to see the depravity of human flesh, and we can't lie about that. And we have to call out the systems that are twisted and destructive, and also know that there's not a human created who wasn't created in the glory of God for the glory of God. And so that ultimately, we're communities that are about redemption and reconciliation. And that's what we're for, to be able to call out those systems, but not despise the people who remain trapped in them. And to really have a radical hope that says, I refuse to be satisfied with progress. I refuse to be optimistic, but I have hope that the creator of the world is also the redeemer of the world. And I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that work. <laughs> I don't have to save the world. I don't have to build the kingdom of God, but that Jesus has shown us the way um and that Jesus is still incarnate in at at the margins and at the edges and 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 doing the work of sanctification and we can choose to be part of that by the grace of God. And I'm just thinking about how do we continue To articulate that message in compelling ways, because I mean, like I'm going to go to the polls next week and I'm going to vote and I think people's votes matter. But I'm not like I'm not dedicating my life to the political realm. Um, And I think there's ways to be faithful and unfaithful in that realm. But ultimately, what I believe is that God is doing something and I want to be part of what God is doing, even if it means I remain foolish and marginal Even if I fail, I'd rather fail bearing witness to what God is doing than succeed in clawing my way up a little bit more in this demonic system that the world says is reality, but I know isn't. So that's what I'm thinking about.
1: Well, when it comes to Advent, I mean, as you have said, we are holding together two ideas, the joy and mystery of Jesus' birth as a weak, vulnerable baby, and the joy and mystery of his second coming, in which the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God. And in this current moment, this current life, this current season that we're in, we look for the signs of the kingdom in the things that are small, weak, vulnerable, just like in his birth. And that is very difficult. And even then at his birth, few people got it. I mean, it was it was in retrospect that people began to see it. Mm-hmm. I mean, even, um, you know, I, I think it's Luke that says um, of, of Mary when um, she would encounter or see things about Jesus, and, and she treasured these things in her mm-hmm. heart as if to say, okay, I know God is at work here. I just don't understand all the ways, but I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to meditate on. It. I'm going to treasure this in in a certain in a, in a kind of way that um, it allows um, the revelation of what is God, what God is doing to redeem the world to emerge. And I think in in the times of which we're living, we're doing the same thing, um, but it, that that word gets clouded by. Um, well, we we love things that are are big and flashy and um, have great names.
0: Well, and I think for so long, people, and I, I think predominantly white Christians, but not just white Christians, have really believed that, like, well, God is redeeming the world through progress in human institutions. Like, as human institutions get more and more righteous and more and more just, the kingdom will come. And I am all for human institutions getting more and more righteous and more and more just, all for it. And also, I think that the witness of scripture is clear that that's not how the kingdom is coming. And that anyone with eyes to see and a beating heart has to cry out, even so Lord Jesus quickly come. But knowing that when we cry out for the coming of Christ, we're not crying out for the destruction Correct. of the world or the destruction of our enemies. That's the world's song. That is not the song of creation. But that we are saying, look, everything is going to change. And not just the things that are mostly evil and wrong, but but also the things that are good are going to be swept away in what is ultimate uh, and and pure glory and pure righteousness and I think you know not being you know just to having that tension between really delighting and affirming and being astonished by the goodness and the beauty and the sanctity of the world as it is and creation and people as they are and also crying out and longing for the full redemption and full restoration and recognizing that our role is passive not active. Is recipient, not giver, right? And and just living with that tension is so is so difficult, um, but really important um, in order to not just become idolatrous, right? And not order to not just you know make a plan and then ask Jesus to be our our mascot on that, but to be really open to what God is doing and knowing that what God is doing often will offend even the most you know, righteous God lovers like you talk about Mary and Mary is so extraordinary because she said yes to this just insane revelation. Right. And also when she those months later brings Jesus to the temple to be dedicated and is met by Anna and what's the other guy's name? I can't uh, remember. No, no, it's not Zachariah. It's Anna and. I don't know. I can't remember. I'm not a Baptist. But Anna says, Wait, they they prophesy and they say to Mary, like a sword will pierce your own soul. Yeah. Like even for those of us who really like Mary, and I mean, I just shouldn't say us because I'm not like Mary in any way, but ha- have really fully surrendered and said, I'm going to like give up all things and and risk even the things that are you know, righteous and, and perceived to be holy and all my relationships, I'm full in, still a sword is going to pierce her own soul. Like still, there are going to be times when she goes to a place and cries out and says, Jesus, I'm your mother. And Jesus says like, not, not so much, right? And yet she's at the foot of the cross, like, faithful to Jesus, and Jesus is faithful to her as a son, you know, f- with a beloved disciple and saying, like, you know, this is your son and this is your mother. I mean, just the mystery of how Jesus does and doesn't belong to us. Um,
1: yeah, and I, I I would simply add that I think the black church, the black Christianity in the West has also lost much of that, um, because from where I sit, it has fallen prey to uh, the prosperity gospel, it's fallen prey. Uh, at least a, a lot of the preaching that I hear and the teaching that I hear, it's as if Jesus exists to be your life coach, your motivator, to help you with your dreams and goals, right? Jesus um, has become a, a sort of mascot to help you with your agenda.
0: Yeah, I just think it's important that We really understand that when we say we want to follow Jesus, then we are saying, not my will, but your will be done. And you don't have to be some like master theologian to understand that God's ways are beyond our comprehension and expectation, right? So So it's this radical act of trust, right? That we're not, we are not worshiping God like an idol. Like you would worship an idol, you know, a tribal God in those days by saying like, I'm going to come and I'm going to, you know, put gifts on your altar and that's going to keep you from doing bad things to you and maybe persuade you to do good things for me in this life that I'm living right now, right? Like that, that was the understanding of divinity, In the first century. And I would argue, and and previously, and I would argue to this day, right? Like, we're just like, as long as I, you know, don't have sex before marriage and I tithe and I show up in worship every month and I vote X, you know, we we have this idea that, like, if I can just do these five things, it'll get God off my back and I can live the good life here and now. And that's not the promise that Jesus is saying, there is a way to abundant life. And I'm going to show you. But it's going to require you allow your life to be formed by the mystery that is the revelation of Christ in this world and not...
1: It's going to cost.
0: And it's not just being shaped by your the latest thing you see and the latest thing you desire and your thoughts and your feelings, right? Like to really continually um, bow down, be prostate, prostrate at the revelation of the cross and say what you know what does this mean and what is ultimate reality and what is truth and what is beauty it is shaped by the revelation of the cross that's where the glory of god is displayed and and then also just you know not skipping past the scandal of the manger right and just of saying where you know we are trained from the very beginning to think like goodness and life and order and peace come from the pinnacles of these human institutions and that's they have the they have the ability and the responsibility and the authority to bring goodness and salvation to this world and Jesus is clearly saying no they don't and so putting the King of Kings in as direct an opposition to that political power that could possibly be done and also I mean, whatever, we're in political season, so it's just worth it to continually point out that we are born into the systems that we're born into, and we are absolutely responsible for living our lives with as much righteousness and faithfulness as we can in all the places that we have um, the ability to display the glory of God. And that certainly includes where we vote and how we participate in the political process. But it's really important to remember that if Jesus had wanted a political party, (laughs) had wanted a nation, had wanted to, you know, he would have done that, and he didn't.
1: If you understand biblical history, especially New Testament culture, you'll understand, you'll see that Among the 12 disciples of Jesus, there were people coming from different political positions, Mm -hmm. right? Peter was all about carrying a sword, and if I need to cut you, I will cut you. Right. Right?
0: That violence is righteous when it's for a righteous cause. And Jesus said no, and Jesus did not seek. I mean, he could have when he had an interview with Pilate. Jesus could have said, all right, let me break it down for you. Let me present my case to you so that you will validate my way as the way so that you will let me go so that I can continue to do what I want to do to build. And he, Jesus refused to do that because Pilate had no authority over Jesus.
1: Yeah, I am astonished by American Christians who are in awe of Let's say Buddhists mm-hmm. who um will who are very intentional about self denial
0: mm-hmm. right self-denial. and
1: there's a there's a discipline there they they center self denial as part of their discipline, and we miss in our own faith in our own following Jesus it's all about that it's not self-denial for the sake of self-denial for christians it's self-denial for the sake of following jesus the, the the shape of our self-denial is in the form of the cross the way of our self-denial is in following jesus and so jesus gives shape and meaning to the way we deny ourselves we're not just out to uh, punish ourselves mm-hmm. some groups they say well you just you have to punish the body in order to make it to heaven that's mm-hmm. not what we're saying
0: right and Ultimately, what one thing that the cross reveals to us is that the power that these institutions have, and they do have power, but that the power that these institutions have ultimately is not enough to stop the power of God. And it's not just that Jesus was undeterred by the power of the Roman Empire and the Um, Pharisees to condemn him and to punish him and to execute him, but it's also that in raising Jesus from the dead, God vindicated Jesus and overturned the judgment of the world, right? And so that's why we can resist, and we can and will be subversive, and we will not seek validation from systems that God is overturning from powers and principalities that are passing away. And also we will not demonize or um reject those who are still um possessed and lost in enthralled to them that we are saying we're we are we are uh the followers of a reconciling God. And a we God can do that redeems. because
1: we know that we are not bringing in or building the kingdom. No. That's that,
0: God's work. And God has done it, right? And, and so we see the culture of the kingdom on the cross. So I, anyway, I, now we're all the way to Easter and beyond, and I really need to, like, <laughs> draw it back. We, and Let's go back to Advent. <laughs> what, what are you thinking about?
1: Well, yesterday was um, the celebration, question mark, observance. Known as Halloween, and um, I heard a long time ago that um, children join your life, and so um, when my wife and I got married, we we did not celebrate Halloween. Um, mm-hmm. we, we didn't celebrate it as um, single people, and then when we got married, we didn't. We, we just don't. Um, For us, it's a, you know, um, Euro-pagan holiday, and we're neither European nor pagan, so (laughs) it's not for us, right? (laughs) Okay. Um, So um, then we had a child, right? Mm -hmm. And when when we were married, Halloween night, um, turn off the lights, we go out to dinner. We had a child. um, As an infant, same thing. I, know. Like go, go I remember dinner. you
0: didn't take him to daycare when they had Halloween celebrations, because you: didn't, I remember that. Yes.
1: Um, and so now he is eight and was really struggling this year. I was like, OK, so what, what, what are we going to do?" And um, to my surprise, weeks ago, he said, "Daddy, I don't want to go trick-or-treating. Can we do a scavenger hunt <laughs> in the house?" I'm like, hmm, okay, um, and then and so I'm I'm preparing for our scavenger hunt in the house, and he said to me last night, "You know what? I just want candy. Can, <laughs> can I just get the candy?" I was like, "You, yes, yes. You, you, you may have candy."
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and it was just a reminder of, um, you know, again how, uh, you know, every family. It is its own culture. Like, mm-hmm. we, we have friends who go all out for that day. Um, our neighbors, I mean, decorate, like, put a lot of effort and energy. And um, we, we don't condemn. Um, we, As a matter of fact, we'll drive through the neighborhood looking at the decorations. And <laughs> our 8-year-old Matthew, uh, we, we were doing that um, about a week ago and uh, looking at the various things. He said... That's not very scary. <laughs> that's not scary either. That that's not. So um, we we don't condemn, condemn people who do. We don't. And um, as a parent, I I must confess that I get a little um, anxious that my child may be missing something. That mm-hmm. in some way we we may be malforming him, um, and yet. There, there's a joy in the unique culture that is our house, that is our family.
0: Yeah, I think um, neither European nor a pagan, but we do celebrate yeah. Halloween. I do think that one of the signs of healthy Christian community is that you don't need your you don't need to be validated by everything being the same. And in fact, on Sunday. We did the children's sermon, and I talked to the kids about, like, I love the term adiaphron, which is a Greek term that Paul uses a lot, particularly in Corinthians, about like, hey, some things don't matter, friends, right? Like, there are some essentials, um, but a lot of things are just, they're adiaphron. There are things about which followers of Jesus can disagree, can be faithful in different ways. Like, we don't have to to, be, to have unity does not require uniformity. And so, you know, for me, um, I think in terms of American holidays, Halloween is about the most Christian that it gets. I understand there are people who think it's demonic and I respect that. But I also just think like in America, we have a tradition where people can get up and walk through their neighborhoods and ring on a door and people just give you something nice. And no matter who you are or where you come from and what you look like, like that sounds like the kingdom of God to me. And so I just think it's, it is such a lovely, like surprisingly, it, it does not I don't see a lot of consistency with this tradition and other parts of American culture. I mean the consumerism, but just sort of like the imaginative and letting people sort of show up in any way they want to on that particular day and being neighborly and um, you know, giving children and teenagers something kind, even though they didn't earn it. Like it's just, (laughs) these seem like kingdom values. So I really think it's really important though, that obviously to be part of the body of Christ, you don't have to celebrate Halloween and you don't have to not celebrate Halloween, right? That we can just like live out the values of Paul and say, some of you think one day is sacred and some of you think another day is sacred and that is fine. Some of you don't eat meat and some of you don't trick or treat and that is fine. As long as you do whatever you do to the glory of God, we, you know, then we're glorifying God and we can bear with one another in love and we can create space. I think that's really important. And Halloween just gives such a, I think a low, um, a low tension way for people to just be like, oh, it's okay, like it's okay. Yeah if my brother and his family don't celebrate Halloween, and it's okay if, you know, my sister and her family do. And I know that that, I can't extrapolate from that whether or not they know Jesus or love Jesus or not. That's really, really important. And there
1: may come a time when our child, when he's older he may choose to do something Mm -hmm. different Mm -hmm. than you know what we do I have to say I
0: thought it was so sweet on my kids my older two daughters asked if they could have friends come and trick-or-treat with us in our neighborhood and so My one, my middle daughter had two friends come and my older daughter had nine. She's a junior in high school. So all of a sudden I'm like, oh, this is a Halloween party that I did not realize we were having. Like I had made chili and like the pot just like barely hung on. So, um, But it was actually just like so sweet to see these big, huge teenagers in their costumes walk around and the majority of my neighbors met them with kindness, and I was nervous because I live in a neighborhood that is almost entirely white, and Callie's friend group is not, <laughs> um, you know, was, like her friends are, you know, African-American and Latino, and, um, and so I was a little worried about, like, what, what are my neighbors going to do when the, and I just was so nice that so many of them just, we're genuinely excited That's good. That's good. to see these kids and to be kind to them. And just, you know, they just think these are small acts of repair mm-hmm. that really matter. Mm. Um, and so it, it was really nice. So I just, I, I kind of think it's glorious. <laughs> so, anyway, well, you don't know what you're preaching about and i do not i am preaching on uh the next part of the sermon on the mount judge not lest you be judged but i mean it's a little more nuanced than that <laughs> and also completely not it's both exactly what you think it means and a little um anyway whatever so we're we were talking about that before we started recording but um yeah i think we've talked enough as always so um Thank you all so much for listening, and if you want to find out more about what God is doing in God's church, Derida Presbyterian Church, you can go to their website, which is deridachurch.faithlifesites.com. That's D-E-R-I-T-A, church.faithlifesites, with an S, well, two S's, actually. Dot com and you could um, join them for worship at 11 a.m. on Sunday and you can check out the Jarida podcast and YouTube channel. The YouTube channel is on, you know, YouTube and the podcast you can find on the Podbean website.
1: And you can live stream with us now
0: oh snap o'clock. snap yes. that's good like would they go to facebook oh, to do that no. Oh, no on your website you on would go to your website, website. all yes. right all right that's good that's good um and if you would like to find out more about what god is doing at god's church the grove you can go to our website which is the grove and you can go to um, our podcast and our youtube channel just look for the the green tree and you're in the right place there's a lot of grove churches in the world um, only
1: one with a green tree
0: only yeah only one Grove Presbyterian so that's kind of fun and um, you can worship with us at 10 o'clock on Sundays uh, and we would love to have you Um, thanks for listening and we will talk to you next week